This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Christine Blashford, www.sidepodcast.com. Can You Forgive Her by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 17 Edge Hill. Of all sights in the world, there is, I think, none more beautiful than that of a pack of foxhounds seated on a winter morning round the huntsman if the place of meeting has been chosen with anything of artistic skill it should be in a grassy field and the field should be small it should not be absolutely away from all buildings and the hedgerows should not have been clipped and pared and made straight with reference to modern agricultural economy there should be trees near and the ground should be a little uneven so as to mark some certain small space as the exact spot where the dogs and servants of the hunt should congregate there are well-known grand meets in England, in the parks of noblemen, before their houses, or even on what are called their lawns, but these magnificent affairs have but little of the beauty of which I speak. Such assemblies are too grand and too ornate, and moreover much too far removed from true sporting proprieties. At them equipages are shining, and ladies' dresses are gorgeous, and crowds of tradesmen from the neighbouring town have come there to look at the grand folk. To my eye there is nothing beautiful in that. The meat I speak of is arranged with a view to sport, but the accident of the locality may make it the prettiest thing in the world. Such in a special degree was the case at Edgehill. At Edgehill the whole village consisted of three or four cottages, but there was a small old church with an old grey tower, and a narrow green almost dark churchyard surrounded by elm trees. The road from Raybury to the meet passed by the church stile, and turning just beyond it came upon the gate which led into the little field in which the hounds felt themselves as much at home as in their kennels. There might be six or seven acres in the field which was long and narrow, so that the huntsman had space to walk leisurely up and down with the pack clustering round him, when he considered that longer sitting might chill them. The church tower was close at hand, visible through the trees, and the field itself was green and soft, though never splashing with mud or heavy with holes. Edgehill was a favourite meet in that country, partly because foxes were very abundant in the great wood adjacent, partly because the whole country around is grassland, and partly, no doubt, from the sporting propensities of the neighbouring population. As regards my own taste, I do not know that I do like beginning a day with a great wood, and if not beginning it, certainly not ending it. It is hard to come upon the cream of hunting, as it is upon the cream of any other delight. Who can always drink Lafitte of the finest, can always talk to a woman who is both beautiful and witty, or can always find the right spirit in the poetry he reads? A man has usually to work through much mud before he gets his nugget. It is so certainly in hunting, and a big wood too frequently afflicts the sportsman, as the mud does the miner. The small gorse cover is the happy, much-envied bit of ground in which the gold is sure to show itself readily, but without the woods the gorse would not hold the foxes, and without the mud the gold would not have found its resting place. But as I have said, Edgehill was a popular meet, and as regarded the meet itself was eminently picturesque. On the present occasion the little field was full of horsemen, moving about slowly, chatting together, smoking cigars, getting off from their hacks and mounting their hunters, giving orders to their servants and preparing for the day. There were old country gentlemen there greeting each other from far sides of the county, sporting farmers who loved to find themselves alongside their landlords, and to feel that the pleasures of the country are common to both men down from town like our friends of the robbery club who made hunting their chosen pleasure and who formed in number perhaps the largest portion of the field officers from garrisons round about a cloud of servants and a few nondescript stragglers who had picked up horses hither and thither round the country outside the gate on the road were drawn up a variety of vehicles open carriages dog-carts gigs and wagonettes in some few of which were seated ladies who had come over to see the meet but edgehill was essentially not a ladies meet 
The distances to it were long, and the rides in Cranby Wood, the big wood, were not adapted for wheels. There were one or two ladies on horseback, as is always the case, but Edgehill was not a place popular even with hunting ladies. One carriage, that of the old master of the hounds, had entered the sacred precincts of the field, and from this the old baronet was just descending, as Maxwell, Calder Jones, and Vervesa rode into the field. "'I hope I see you well, Sir William,' said Maxwell, greeting the master. Calder Jones also made his little speech, and so did Vervesa. Hmm. well, yes, I'm pretty well, thank you. Just move on, will you? My mare can't stir here.' Then someone else spoke to him, and he only grunted in answer. Having slowly been assisted up onto his horse, for he was over seventy years of age, he trotted off to the hounds, while all the farmers round him touched their hats to him. But his mind was laden with affairs of import, and he noticed no one. In a whispered voice he gave his instructions to his huntsman, who said, "'Yes, Sir William. No, Sir William. No doubt, Sir William.' One long-eared, long-legged fellow in a hunting cap and scarlet coat hung listening by, anxious to catch something of the orders for the morning. "'Who the devil's that fellow that's all breeches and boots?' said Sir William aloud to someone near him, as the huntsman moved off with the hounds. Sir William knew the man well enough, but was minded to punish him for his discourtesy. "'Where shall we find first, Sir William?' said Calder Jones, in a voice that was really very humble. "'How the mischief am I to know where the foxes are?' said Sir William, with an oath, and Calder Jones retired unhappy, and for the moment altogether silenced. And yet Sir William was the most popular man in the county, and no more courteous gentleman ever sat at the bottom of his own table. A mild man he was, too, when out of his saddle, and one by no means disposed to assume special supremacy. But a master of hounds, if he have long held the country, and Sir William had held his for more than thirty years, obtains a power which that of no other potentate can equal. He may say and do what he pleases, and his tyranny is always respected. No conspiracy against him has a chance of success, no sedition will meet with sympathy, that is, if he be successful in showing sport. If a man be sworn at, abused, and put down without cause, let him bear it, and think that he has been a victim for the public good, and let him never be angry with the master. That rough tongue is the necessity of the master's position. They used to say that no captain could manage a ship without swearing at his men, but what are the captain's troubles in comparison with those of the master of hounds? The captain's men are under discipline, and can be locked up, flogged, or have their grog stopped. The master of hounds cannot stop the grog of any offender, and he can only stop the tongue or horse of such a one by very sharp words. "'Well, Pollock, when did you come?' said Maxwell. "'By George,' said the literary gentleman, "'just down from London by the 8.30 from Euston Square, "'and got over here from Winslow in a trap, "'with two fellows I never saw in my life before. "'We came tandem in a fly and did the nineteen miles in an hour.' "'Come, Athenian, draw it mild,' said Maxwell. "'We did, indeed. "'I wonder whether they'll pay me for their share of the fly. "'I had to leave Onslow Crescent at a quarter before eight, "'and I did three hours' work before I started.' "'Then you did it by candlelight,' said Grindley. "'Of course I did, and why shouldn't I?' "'Do you suppose no one can work by candlelight except a lawyer? "'I suppose you fellows were playing whist and drinking hard. "'I'm uncommon glad I wasn't with you, for I shall be able to ride.' "'I bet you a pound,' said Jones. "'If there's a run, I see more of it than you.' "'I'll take that bet with Jones,' said Grindley, "'and Vervesa shall be the judge.' "'Gentlemen, the hounds can't get out if you will stop up the gate,' said Sir William. "'Then the pack passed through, and they all trotted on for four miles to Cranby Wood. "'Vervesa, as he rode on to the wood, was alone, or speaking, "'from time to time, a few words to his servant.' "'I'll ride the chestnut mare in the wood,' he said, "'and do you keep near me?' "'I bain't to be galloping up and down them rides, I suppose,' said Bat, almost contemptuously. "'I shan't gallop up and down the rides myself, but do you mark me to know where I am, so that I can change if a fox should go away?' "'You'll be here all day, sir, that's my belief.' "'If so, I won't ride the brown horse at all, but do you take care to let me have him if there's a chance, do you understand?' "'Oh, yes, I understand, sir. There ain't no difficulty in my understanding.' 
"'Only I don't think, sir, you'll ever get a fox out of that wood to-day. "'Why, it stands to reason the wind's from the north-east.' "'Cranby Wood is very large, there being, in truth, two or three woods together. "'It was nearly twelve before they found, "'and then for an hour there was great excitement among the men "'who rode up and down the rides as the hounds drove the fox "'from one end to another of the enclosure. "'Once or twice the poor animal did try to go away, "'and then there was great hallooing, galloping and jumping over unnecessary fences, "'but he was headed back again or changed his mind, "'not liking the northeast wind of which Bat Smithers had predicted such bad things.' After one, the crowd of men became rather more indifferent, and clustered together in broad spots, eating their lunch, smoking cigars, and chaffing each other. It was singular to observe the amazing quantity of ham sandwiches and of sherry that had been carried into Cranby Wood on that day. Grooms appeared to have been laden with cases, and men were as well armed with flasks at their saddle-bows as they used to be with pistols. Maxwell and Pollock formed the centre of one of these crowds, and chaffed each other with the utmost industry, till, tired of having inflicted no wounds, they turned upon Grindley, and drove him out of the circle. "'You'll make that man cut his throat if you go on at that,' said Pollock. "'Shall I?' said Maxwell. "'Then I'll certainly stick to him for the sake of humanity in general.' During all this time Vivesa sat apart, quite alone, and Bat Smithers grimly kept his place about three hundred yards from him. "'We shan't do any good to-day,' said Grindley, coming up to Vivesa. "'I'm sure I don't know,' said Vivesa. "'That old fellow has got to be so stupid he doesn't know what he's about,' said Grindley, meaning Sir William. "'How can he make the fox break?' said Vivesa and as his voice was by no means encouraging, Grindley rode away. Lunch and cigars lasted till two, during which hour the hounds, the huntsmen, the whips, and old Sir William were hard at work, as also were some few others who persistently followed every chance of the game. From that till three there were two or three flashes in the pan, and false reports as to foxes which had gone away, which first set men galloping, and then made them very angry. After three men began to say naughty things, to abuse Cranby Wood, to wish violently that they had remained at home or gone elsewhere, and to speak irreverently of their ancient master. "'It's the cussedest place in all creation,' said Maxwell. "'I often said I'd not come here any more, and now I say it again.' "'And yet you'll be here the next meet,' said Grindley, who had sneaked back to his old companions in weariness of spirit. "'Grindums, you know a sight too much,' said Maxwell. "'You do indeed. An ordinary fellow has no chance with you.' Grindley was again going to catch it, but was on this time saved by the appearance of the huntsman, who came galloping up one of the rides with a lot of the hounds at his heels. "'He isn't away, Tom, surely,' said Maxwell. "'He's out of the wood somewhere,' said Tom, and off they all went. Vervasa changed his horse, getting on to the brown one, and giving up his chestnut mare to Bat Smithers, who suggested that he might as well go home to Robury now. Vervasa gave him no answer, but trotting on to the point where the rides met, stopped a moment and listened carefully.' Then he took a path diverging away from that by which the huntsman and the crowd of horsemen had gone, and made the best of his way through the wood. At the end of this he came upon Sir William, who, with no one near him but his servant, was standing in the pathway of a little hunting-gate. "'Hold hard,' said Sir William, "'the hounds are not out of the wood yet.' "'Is the fox away, sir?' "'What's the good of that if we can't get the hounds out?' "'Yes, he's away. He passed out where I'm standing.' And then he began to blow his horn lustily, and by degrees other men and a few hounds came down the ride. Then Tom, with his horse almost blown, made his appearance outside the wood, and soon there came a rush of men, nearly on the top of one another, pushing on, not knowing whither, but keenly alive to the fact that the fox had at last consented to move his quarters. Tom touched his hat and looked at his master inquiringly. "'He's gone for Claydon,' said the master. "'Try them up that hedgerow.' Tom did try them up the hedgerow, and in half a minute the hounds came upon the scent. Then you might see men settling their hats on their heads and feeling their feet in their stirrups. The moment for which they had so long waited had come, and yet there were many who would now have preferred that the fox should be headed back into cover. Some had but little confidence in their half-blown horses, with many the waiting, though so abused and anathematized, was in truth more to their taste than the run itself. With others the excitement had gone by, and a gallop over a field or two was necessary before it would be restored. 
with most men at such a moment there is a little nervousness some fear of making a bad start a dread lest others should have more of the success of the hunt than falls to them but there was a great rush and a mighty bustle as the hounds made out their game and sir william felt himself called upon to use the rough side of his tongue to more than one delinquent and then certain sly old stages might be seen turning off to the left instead of following the course of the game as indicated by the hounds they were men who had felt the air as they came out and knew that the fox must soon run down wind whatever he might do for the first half mile or so men who knew also which was the shortest way to claydon's by the road ah the satisfaction that there is when these men are thrown out and their dead knowledge proved to be of no avail if a fox will only run straight heading from the cover on his real line these very sagacious gentlemen seldom come to much honour and glory in the present instance the beast seemed determined to go straight enough for the hounds ran the scent along three or four hedgerows in a line he had managed to get for himself full ten minutes start and had been able to leave the cover and all his enemies well behind him before he bethought himself as to his best way to his purposed destination and here from field to field there were little hunting gates at which men crowded lustily poking and shoving each other's horses and hating each other with a bitterness of hatred which is i think known nowhere else no hunting man ever wants to jump if he can help it, and the hedges near the gate were not alluring. A few there were who made lines for themselves, taking the next field to the right, or scrambling through the corners of the fences while the rush was going on at the gates, and among these was George Vavasor. He never rode in a crowd, always keeping himself somewhat away from men as well as hounds. He would often be thrown out, and then men would hear no more of him for that day. On such occasions he did not show himself as other men do, twenty minutes after the fox had been killed or run to ground, but betook himself home by himself, going through the byways and lanes, thus leaving no report of his failure to be spoken of by his compeers. As long as the line of gates lasted, the crowd continued as thick as ever, and the best man was he whose horse could shove the hardest. After passing some four or five fields in this way, they came out upon a road, and the scent holding strong, the dogs crossed it without any demurring. Then came doubt into the minds of men, many of whom, before they would venture away from their position on the lane, narrowly watched the leading hounds to see whether there was indication of a turn to the one side or the other. Sir William, whose seventy-odd years excused him, turned sharp to the left, knowing that he could make Claydon's that way, and very many were the submissive horsemen who followed him. A few took the road to the right, having in their minds some little game of their own. The hardest riders there had already crossed from the road into the country, and were going well to the hounds, ignorant, some of them, of the brook before them, and others unheeding. Foremost among these was Burgo Fitzgerald, Burgo Fitzgerald, whom no man had ever known to crane at a fence, or to hug a road, or to spare his own neck or his horses. And yet poor Burgo seldom finished well, coming to repeated grief in this matter of his hunting, as he did so constantly in other matters of his life. But almost neck and neck with Burgo was Pollock, the sporting literary gentleman. Pollock had but two horses to his stud, and was never known to give much money for them, and he weighed without his boots fifteen stones. No one ever knew how Pollock did it, more especially as all the world declared that he was as ignorant of hunting as any tailor. He could ride, or when he couldn't ride he could tumble, men said that of him, and he would ride as long as the beast under him could go. But few knew the sad misfortunes which poor Pollock sometimes encountered, the muddy ditches in which he was left, the despair with which he would stand by his unfortunate horse when the poor brute could no longer move across some deep ploughed field, the miles that he would walk at night beside a tired animal as he made his way slowly back to Raybury. Then came Tom the huntsman with Calder Jones close to him, and grinly intent on winning his sovereign. Vervesa had also crossed the road somewhat to the left, carrying with him one or two who knew that he was a safe man to follow. Maxwell had been ignominiously turned by the hedge, which together with its ditch formed a fence such as all men do not love at the beginning of a run. He had turned from it, acknowledging the cause. "'By George,' said he, "'that's too big for me yet a while, and there's no end of a river at the bottom.' So he had followed the master down the road. 
All of those whom we have named managed to get over the brook, Pollock's horse barely contriving to get up his hind legs from the broken edge of the bank. Some nags refused it, and their riders thus lost all their chance of sport for that day. Such is the lot of men who hunt. A man pays five or six pounds for his day's amusement, and it is ten to one that the occurrences of the day disgust rather than gratify him. One or two got in and scrambled out on the other side, but Tufto Purlings, the Manchester man from Friday Street, stuck in the mud at the bottom and could not get his mare out till seven men had come with ropes to help him. "'Where the devil is my fellow?' Purlings asked of the countryman, but the countryman could not tell him that his fellow with his second horse was riding the hunt with great satisfaction to himself. George Vivesa found that his horse went with him uncommonly well, taking his fences almost in the stride of his gallop, and giving unmistakable signs of good condition.' "'I wonder what it is that's amiss with him,' said George to himself, resolving, however, that he would sell him that day if he got an opportunity. Straight went the line of the fox up from the brook, and Tom began to say that his master had been wrong about Claydon's. "'Where are we now?' said Burgo, as four or five of them dashed through the open gate of a farmyard. "'This is Bulby's farm,' said Tom, "'and we're going right away for Elmham Wood.' "'Elmham Wood be da said a stout farmer, who had come as far as that with them. "'You won't see Elmham Wood to-day.' "'I suppose you know best,' said Tom, and then they were through the yard, across another road, and down a steep ravine by the side of a little copse. "'He's been through them firs, anyway,' said Tom. "'To him, gay lass!' Then up they went the other side of the ravine, and saw the body of the hounds almost a field before them at the top. "'I say, that took some of the wind out of a fellow,' said Pollock. "'You mustn't mind about wind now,' said Burgo, dashing on. "'Wasn't the pace awful coming up to that farmhouse?' said Calder Jones, looking round to see if Grindley was shaken off but Grindley, with some six or seven others, was still there, and there also, always in the next field to the left, was George Vavaser. He had spoken no word to anyone since the hunt commenced, nor had he wished to speak to anyone. He desired to sell his horse, and he desired also to succeed in the run for other reasons than that, though I think he would have found it difficult to define them. Now they had open grassland for about a mile, but with very heavy fences, so that the hounds gained upon them a little, and Pollock's weight began to tell. The huntsman and Burgo were leading with some fortunate county gentleman, whose good stars had brought him in upon them at the farmyard gate. It is the injustice of such accidents as this that breaks the heart of a man who has honestly gone through all the heat and work of the struggle. And the hounds had veered a little round to the left, making, after all, for Claydon's. "'Darned if the squire weren't right,' said Tom. Sir William, through a baronet, was familiarly called the squire throughout a hunt. "'We ain't going for Claydon's now,' asked Burgo. "'Them's Claydon's beeches we sees over there,' said Tom. "'Tain't often the squire's wrong.' Here they came to a little double rail and a little quick-set hedge. A double rail is a nasty fence always if it has been made any way strong, and one which a man with a wife and a family is justified in avoiding. They mostly can be avoided, having gates, and this could have been avoided. But Burgo never avoided anything, and went over it beautifully. The difficulty is to be discreet when the man before one has been indiscreet. Tom went for the gate, as did Pollock, who knew that he could have no chance at the double rails. But Calder Jones came to infinite grief, striking the top bar of the second rail and going head foremost out of his saddle, as though thrown by a catapult. There we must leave him. Grindley, rejoicing greatly at this discomfiture, made for the gate, but the country gentleman with the fresh horse accomplished the rails and was soon alongside of Burgo. "'I didn't see you at the start,' said Burgo. "'And I didn't see you,' said the country gentleman, "'so it's even.' Burgo did not see the thing in the same light, but he said no more. Grindley and Tom were soon after them, Tom doing his utmost to shake off the attorney. Pollock was coming on also, but the pace had been too much for him, and though the ground rode light, his poor beast laboured and grunted sorely. The hounds were still veering somewhat to the left, and Burgo, jumping over a small fence into the same field with them, saw that there was a horseman ahead of him. This was George Vavesa, who was going well without any symptom of distress. And now they were at Claydon's, having run over some seven miles of ground in about thirty-five minutes. To those who do not know what hunting is, this pace does not seem very extraordinary, but it had been quite quick enough, as was testified by the horses, which had gone the distance. 
Our party entered Claydon's Park at back, through a gate in the park palings that was open on hunting days, but a much more numerous lot was there almost as soon as them, who had come in by the main entrance. This lot was headed by Sir William, and our friend Maxwell was with him. "'A jolly thing so far,' said Burgo to Maxwell. "'About the best we've had this year.' "'I didn't see a yard of it,' said Maxwell. "'I hadn't nerve to get off the first road, and I haven't been off it ever since.' Maxwell was a man who never lied about his hunting, or had the slightest shame in riding roads. "'Who's been with you?' said he. "'There have been Tom and I, and Calder James was there for a while. I think he killed himself somewhere. And there was Pollock, and your friend Grindley, and a chap whose name I don't know, who dropped out of heaven about halfway in the run. And there was another man whose back I saw just now. There he is. By heavens, it's Vavasor. I didn't know he was here.' They hung about the Claydon covers for ten minutes, and then their fox went off again, their fox or another, as to which there was a great discussion afterwards. But he who would have suggested the idea of a new fox to Sir William would have been a bold man.' A fox, however, went off, turning still to the left from Claydon's towards Raybury. Those ten minutes had brought up some fifty men, but it did not bring up Calder Jones, nor Tufto Perlings, nor some half-dozen others who had already come to serious misfortune. But Grindley was there, very triumphant in his own success, and already talking of Jones's sovereign. And Pollock was there also, thankful for the ten minutes' law, and trusting that wind might be given to his horse to finish the run triumphantly. But the pace on leaving Claydon's was better than ever. This may have come from the fact that the scent was keener, as they got out so close upon their game, but I think they must have changed their fox. Maxwell, who saw him go, swore that he was fresh and clean. Burgo said that he knew it to be the same fox, but gave no reason. Same fox, in course it was. Why shouldn't it be the same? said Tom. The country gentleman who had dropped from heaven was quite sure that they had changed, and so were most of those who had ridden the road. Pollock confined himself to hoping that he might soon be killed, and that thus his triumph for the day might be assured. On they went, and the pace soon became too good for the poor author. His horse at last refused a little hedge, and there was not another trot to be got out of him. That night Pollock turned up at Robury about nine o'clock, very hungry, and it was known that his animal was alive, but the poor horse ate not a grain of oats that night, nor on the next morning. Vivesa had again taken a line to himself, on this occasion a little to the right of the meat, but Maxwell followed him and rode close with him to the end. Burgo for a while still led the body of the field, incurring at first much condemnation from Sir William, nominally for hurrying on among the hounds, but in truth because he got before Sir William himself. During this latter part of the run Sir William stuck to the hounds in spite of his seventy-odd years. Going down into Mar and Bottom, some four or five were left behind, for they feared the soft ground near the river, and did not know the pass through it. But Sir William knew it, and those who remained close to him got over that trouble. Burgo, who would still lead, nearly foundered in the bog, but he was light and his horse pulled him through, leaving a foreshoe in the mud. After that Burgo was contented to give Sir William the lead. Then they came up by Marham Pits to Cleshy Smallwood, which they passed without hanging there a minute, and over the grasslands of Cleshy Farm. Here Vervesa and Maxwell joined the others, having gained some three hundred yards in distance by their course, but having been forced to jump the Marham stream which Sir William had forded. The pace now was as good as the horses could make it, and perhaps something better as regarded some of them. Sir William's servant had been with him, but and he had got his second horse at Claydon's. Maxwell had been equally fortunate. Tom's second horse had not come up, and his beast was in great distress. Grindley had remained behind at Marham Bottom, being contented perhaps with having beaten Calder James, from whom, by the by, I may here declare that he never got his sovereign. Burgo, Vavesa, and the country gentlemen still held on, but it was devoutly desired by all of them that the fox might soon come to the end of his tether. Ah, that intense longing that the fox may fail, when the failings of the horse begin to make themselves known, and the consciousness comes on that all that one has done will go for nothing, unless the thing can be brought to a close in a field or two. So far you have triumphed, leaving scores of men behind, but of what good is all that if you also are to be left behind at the last? It was manifest now to all who knew the country that the fox was making for Thorndon Deer Park, but Thorndon Deer Park was still two miles ahead of them, and the hounds were so near to their game that the poor beast could hardly hope to live till he got there. 
He had tried a well-known drain near Cleshy Farmhouse, but it had been inhospitably, nay, cruelly closed against him. Soon after that he threw himself down in a ditch, and the eager hounds overran him, giving him a moment's law, and giving also a moment's law to horses that wanted it as badly. "'I'm about done for,' said Burgo to Maxwell. "'Luckily for you,' said Maxwell, "'the fox is much in the same way.' But the fox had still more power left in him than poor Burgo Fitzgerald's horse. He gained a minute's check, and then he started again, being viewed away by Sir William himself. The country gentleman of whom mention has been made also viewed him, and hollowed as he did so, "'Yoik's tally gone away!' the unfortunate man. "'What the are you roaring at?' said Sir William. "'Do you suppose I don't know where the fox is?' Whereupon the country gentleman retreated, and became less conspicuous than he had been. Away they went again, off Cleshy and into Thorndon Parish, on the land of Sorrel Farm, a spot well to be remembered by one or two ever afterwards. Here Sir William made for a gate, which took him a little out of the line, but Maxwell and Burgo Fitzgerald, followed by Vivesa, went straight ahead. There was a huge ditch and boundary bank there, which Sir William had known and had avoided. Maxwell, whose pluck had returned to him at last, took it well. His horse was comparatively fresh, and made nothing of it. Then came poor Burgo. Oh, Burgo, hadst thou not have been a very child, thou shouldst have known that now, at this time of day, after all that thy gallant horse had done for thee, it was impossible to thee or him. But when did Burgo Fitzgerald know anything? He rode at the bank as though it had been the first fence of the day, striking his poor beast with his spurs as though muscle, strength, and new power could be imparted by their rowels. The animal rose at the bank, and in some way got upon it, scrambling as he struck it with his chest, and then fell headlong into the ditch at the other side, a confused mass of head, limbs, and body. His career was at an end, and he had broken his heart. Poor noble beast, noble in vain! To his very last gasp he had done his best, and had deserved that he should have been in better hands. His master's ignorance had killed him. There are men who never know how little a horse can do, or how much. There was to some extent a gap in the fence when Maxwell had first ridden it, and Burgo had followed him, a gap or break in the hedge at the top, indicating plainly the place at which a horse could best get over. To this spot Vervesa followed, and was on the bank at Burgo's heels before he knew what had happened, but the man had got away, and only the horse lay there in the ditch. "'Are you hurt?' said Vervesa. "'Can I do anything?' But he did not stop. "'If you can find a chap, just send him to me,' said Burgo in a melancholy tone. Then he sat down with his feet in the ditch, and looked at the carcass of his horse." There was no more need of jumping that day. The way was open into the next field, a turnip field, and there amidst the crisp breaking turnip tops, with the breath of his enemies hot upon him, with their sharp teeth at his entrails, biting at them impotently in the agonies of his death struggle, poor Reynard finished his career. Maxwell was certainly the first there, but Sir William and George Vavasor were close upon him. That taking of brushes of which we used to hear is a little out of fashion, but if such honour were due to any one, it was due to Vavasor, for he and he only had ridden the hunt throughout. But he claimed no honour, and none was specially given to him. He and Maxwell rode homewards together, having sent assistance to poor Burgo Fitzgerald, and as they went along the road, saying but little to each other, Maxwell, in a very indifferent voice, asked him a question. "'What do you want for that horse, Vavasor?' A hundred and fifty, said Vavesa. He's mine, said Maxwell. So the brown horse was sold for about half his value, because he had brought with him a bad character. End of chapter 17